This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Sometimes I fear that we're doing too many podcasts. No, never too many podcasts. No, probably. No, no. No, no. Welcome to Overdue. (laughs) You will die. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I I bring up my fear of us doing too many podcasts because this week we're going to talk about scary stuff. And Andrew, what what are you afraid of? Okay, are we just talking about generalized fear? Or are we talking about like the ways that you're scared to die? Like, do we just we just want to jump in, whatever? Because I oh. got a bunch. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So, so this week we're talking about Stephen King's It, and we're gonna dive into that book in just a second because it's a bit of a doozy, and we don't want to waste any time. But I it's do want to know what scares you, Andrew. First response to that question: Go. Um, I get pretty claustrophobic. Okay. If I can't like move. Okay. And I don't like it. Um, scared of drowning, scared of dying in a house fire. Oh, that's right. Those are big ones. I don't know um, why I knew that about you. <laughs> I think we've talked about it before, but like, I guess being buried alive triggers the claustrophobia thing, but I don't get scared of it because I don't think it's super realistic. Like, I, yeah. as far as I know, I've not crossed any mob figures or anybody who would try to bury me alive. I watch enough soap operas that I feel like I would have to cross a like powerful mother-in-law to get mm-hmm. like and I like my <laughs> my impending mother-in-law would never bury anyone alive. So like I I'm not I mean that's what you think right now. Uh, that's true. She because listens you to haven't the show. crossed her yet. <laughs> so now I've opened some sort of Pandora's box. Uh, I don't I can get like a little jumpy in the dark sometimes. Okay. Like, do, have like, I talked? Do you need a nightlight, or is it? I like, what is? I used to sleep with my bedroom door a little open, and oh, okay. we'd have like some some like faint hallway light coming in. Okay. So may, maybe I just kind of never got fully acclimated to the dark. I get that. I, I mean, I know. do. When I'm in the dark, I like to use my phone flashlight. And in fact, when I was reading it. They kept having to light matches and stuff to like see in the dark. And I was like, why don't they just use their phones? Like, what are we? (laughs) But this took place in the 80s, so never mind. Okay. So we're talking about this book, It, which is by a guy named Stephen King. Have you heard of him? He is, yeah. Yeah, he is probably the preeminent horror writer of ours and several generations. Uh, he, was, he is what? at the very least like a watermark against which other writers have to be compared, right? So like your Dean Kuntz's and your Anne Rice's are all compared to Stephen King in one way or another. I think. Yeah, and he not so bluntly in a Rolling Stone interview uh, that I'll make sure I link on our Facebook feed sometime this week uh, said that he helped to elevate the horror genre in ways in the way that someone like Raymond Chandler elevated detective novels. Um, he's a big proponent for the like, don't hate on this because it's a genre book. Uh-huh. And he's kind of fought against that and has gotten a lot of flack from critics over the years for being a genre writer. Yeah, there's a there's a section of of this book that is not so subtly about that. I don't know if you want to talk about it now or if you want to wait. Well, we're actually like in the book. (laughs) If you if you want to look it up, I will tell you that in this Rolling Stone interview, he's talking about critics Harold Bloom and Michiko Kakatani. And he says Bloom and Kakatani and a number of gray eminences in literary criticism are like children who say, I can't possibly eat this meat because the different kinds of food are touching on the plate. And he's just (laughs) he also goes on to say that he thinks Hemingway sucks. And he's he is like. I did not realize uh, that he was a man of such candor. Like, he's got opinions. He's I mean, got I think opinions. he's at this point he's 
famous enough that he can just say whatever. And he's Stephen King. So like as long as he's not talking about murdering kids like in for real not like in a book then he's he'll be fine yeah yeah there's so there's this there's a section of book the character's name is bill denbro and he is like the main kid i guess to the extent that that any character in this book is the main character Mm -hmm. and he's a he's a writer he's grown up to be a horror writer so i don't know if this uh, sounds familiar to you but interesting uh, yeah so uh this this particular horror writer in this book is uh, standing up in his college fiction class where all the professor wants to talk about is like, uh, you'll, you'll hear about it in a second. Okay. So this is from the book speaking carefully, not stuttering. He's not stuttered in better than five years. He says, I don't understand this at all. I don't understand any of this. Why does the story have to be socio anything politics, culture, history. Aren't those natural ingredients in any story? If it's told well, I mean, He looks around, sees hostile eyes, and realizes dimly that they see this as some sort of attack. Maybe it even is. They are thinking, he realizes, that maybe there is a sexist death merchant in their midst. I mean, (laughs) can't you guys just let a story be a story? No one replies. Silence spins out. He stands there looking from one cool set of eyes to the next. The sallow girl chuffs out smoke and snubs her cigarette in an ashtray she's brought along in her backpack. And then later on, uh, a professor grades one of his stories after this little tirade. Uh, the story comes back from the instructor with an F slashed into the title page. Two words are scrawled beneath in capital letters. Pulp screams one. Crap screams the other. And then uh, this this writer later, this becomes like his first published short story or first published novel or something. And he shows them. <laughs> He shows all those snooty people in their ivory towers what it what pulp crap can be. Okay. Yeah, he he doesn't seem to care. And I, I feel like I I read King when I was in middle and high school, and I don't think I fully understood like where he fell in the modern bestseller canon. Yeah. But in kind of reading up on him for the show, I've been surprised, like pleasantly surprised by how much of a loose cannon he seems to be. Yeah. And, and as far as like the horror tradition, he cites Lovecraft as a big influence. And especially like when when King is talking about his fictionalized New England towns, he is leaning heavily on some Lovecrafty stuff. Well, when he does that. Yeah. I mean, he's from Maine, born and raised Maine. Uh, he spent some time in Colorado a little bit later. Uh, and then that's where he wrote the stand while he was in Colorado. And we've done an episode on the stand. Our good friend Jocko is on that episode. It's episode one, uh, episode thirty three, over a hundred episodes ago. That's oh, way back into the that's vault. That's terrifying. <laughs> I don't know. I can't vouch for the sound quality on that one. But I can. But... <laughs> I can vouch for the goof quality on it. Jocko's a funny dude, and I was listening to it this morning, and he's still funny. Um, All right. Good. He hasn't become less funny with no. Well, the age. old version of him has not become less funny. Okay. Uh, yeah, he wrote the standout in Colorado and then he came back to Maine and Carrie was like his first major success, but yeah, the, he, he was able to like stop teaching and whatever because of that. Yeah. Uh, And this, this was another early success for him. So this was published in 1986 and it was written in a four year stretch between 1981 and 1985. And, um, yeah, it was all it was like at the very end of the book, it says it was started and ended in Bangor, Maine, which is approximately where the fictional town of Derry, where all the stuff takes place. D.E.R.R.Y. Not like the cow milk. Nope. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he obviously has a lot of ties to Maine and um, that town shows up a few times in other stories, including the uh, one he wrote re- relatively recently. Um, what was it? The one that's becoming a TV series. Uh, Eleven twenty-two sixty-three. Right. I remembered it was numbers. I did not remember what the numbers Isn't were. Isn't that that's the date <laughs> of the JFK assassination? Right. I yeah. really hope I got those numbers right. I'm not fact checking this right now. And I think I just that, said yes, the numbers. Somebody in that book time travels and ends up in Derry and like briefly has a brush with a couple of the kids from it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I read Needful Things, which seems to me like. Uh, structured similarly to it, what research I've done, and it that has its own like here's a sm- here's a town in Maine where everyone's evil, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in in the um 
Rolling Stone interview, he talks a lot about, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this as we go through the book, Andrew, like what evil is and where it comes from. He He's said that he chooses to believe in God, but that he, it like as a former addict, like he had a severe cocaine problem in the 70s. He was an alcoholic. Uh, he had managed to kick it by at some point in the late 80s. Um, but he kind of, he uses... God for him serves a very particular purpose of like helping him out in a way that he knows he cannot handle the world, right? Uh, but in terms of like a supernatural evil in the same like God and devil archetype, he's not quite sure. He's he's becoming more and more convinced that evil is just like innate to who we are. And oh, that did he have a question about that before? Because that seems like maybe not that big a revelation. Well, I think... <laughs> in this book, okay. the, the particular evil in this book is very much like an outside thing that's literally from another dimension. Okay, cool. And it kind of like this whole town is sort of infused with evil. Like you would infuse... I don't know what what kind of things do you infuse like you would infuse ice cream with coffee flavor. <laughs> yeah, you would like infuse, that. Yeah, delicious, delicious, delicious evil. Uh, do you want to just you want to just get in get into this thing? Yeah, let's just get in this car and drive away. Um, so this book, I don't know if it is the single longest book I've ever read. Okay, because I that doesn't really count like series, and I don't remember if the Silmarillion was this long. It definitely felt really long, and I'm not saying that because it was a bad thing necessarily. I'm just saying that it was long. It was so long. <laughs> it took me so long to read. Now, is that also perhaps this is the longest book that you've ever read on a vague deadline? Possibly it was just the deadline of it that was really making me feel it because... When you're like flipping those pages and look at the, and that at that little indicator on the bottom of the Kindle app, like usually percentage is what I go by. This was the first book that was so long that it was more useful to measure it by like the amount of minutes left in the book yeah. or in the chapter. Yeah, because that number, the timestamp number, will fluctuate. As I was saying to you, whether or not you're like watching TV or or having converse, a conversation with someone in the room, right? Yeah, and you're like, oh no, it's going to take me six hours. And then if you accidentally, if you actually focus, it's like, oh no, it'll take me two hours. This is fine. But with a book that long, I imagine it kind of evens out. And you no, just it realize... pretty was pretty accurate. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's like when you're in a car and your GPS is giving you an estimated arrival time, yeah. and you feel like you should be able to beat it, but in the end, with like gas stops and stuff, it ends up taking about the it amount of time. Always that it knows. Yeah, it's pretty good at it. Okay, so okay. what? What? <laughs> I don't know why I had to stop the podcast to marvel at GPSs for a second. You should tell me about this book that we are reading thanks to one of our patrons graham who helped us out. we'll talk about that at the end of the show anyway thanks graham i say that mostly sincerely <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so it the book itself published in 1986 it was also a tv miniseries in 1990 with uh tim curry in the role of pennywise the clown who is the titular it yeah and um king has there like, are pictures of him yeah they're amazing makeup, and it's like yeah that's the clown he that's a argued scary guy. he argued specifically to not have prosthetics in that role like they wanted to put a bunch of latex on his face and he repeatedly forced the makeup person to be like nope 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 just put the clown makeup on me i will be the worst yeah uh, no and then he is because he's tim curry and he has rubber face <laughs> and king has at least at this point in his career uh, he has a little bit more control over how his projects get adapted. At the time, he was like, yeah, go for it. Have fun. And while I don't think he thought it was a super, like, the best thing ever, uh, he did praise Curry's performance as Pennywise. Because so. Tim Curry, like, gives 110% no matter what he's in. Like, Home even if he's giving it to an awful it. part. Congo. That Congo, man, yeah, Tim Curry in Congo is a real scene stealer. That man knows how to choose some scenery. Oh, man, he chooses everything. He chooses lines, he chooses his scenery, he chooses his accents that he's mm -hmm, chosen mm -hmm. for himself. Uh-huh. And then uh, apparently there's another film adaptation of It coming up. Um, yeah, it keeps and, stalling, but it might come yeah, out. Yeah, I think it might be in, like, in development hell or something, but uh, Will Poulter is going to be Pennywise the Clown in that. So I don't really, I'm not really familiar with his work, but 
yeah. So this this continues to resonate, I guess, is is the point. Yeah, I keep seeing you, everyone and, more excited about the Dark Tower movies, but whatever, I guess. Yeah, and if you but if, well, if you don't want to read an eleven hundred and thirty eight page book, you can go see it in TV or movie form, I guess, and get some of the gist of it. Or just keep listening to the show, and Andrew will help you out. I'm going to help you out, but it's not going to convey everything because the book's so long. Okay, so there are, there are I'm going to divide this up into five sections, and I'm telling you about them now because I want you to help me keep the podcast on track so it's we not two so hours long. We so rarely do this, so like, forgive me if I mess up. But yes, Like, we okay. did literally just talk about doing this more, though. <laughs> no, but I'm talking, oh my god, this is the part of the show where like, I pull back the curtain to make a goof. <sighs> Never mind. And then there's just like toys everywhere. <laughs> there's then there's like a roller skate that I left there, and then you trip on it and fall down the stairs. <laughs> All right. So first, I want to talk about the the loose plot of the story. Okay. Um, second, I want to talk about how it's structured. Uh, third, I want to talk about Stephen King's prose that I've already given you a small example of, but there's there's much more. Uh, fourth, there's a particular thing that grossed me out that I want to spend a lot of time on. And then I want to just I know that we normally just get to the end and sum it all up anyway. But I want to to point out in particular that we need to sum this up because it's just like it's hard to put a bow on all your feelings about a book that's this big like this soon after you finished it. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It makes it makes most sense. <laughs> Mostly it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not it, it makes the most sense Mm-mm. is not what you meant. No, it it's fine. Just tell okay. me about the plot of this book called It. All right. So here is the deal. In the fictional town of Derry, Maine, uh, uh, which is shown up in a few other King books, as I mentioned, um, every 27 or 28 years, this town is troubled by a monstrous presence that murders people. And those people are often kids or usually kids. Now, do they know that this presence is around, or is this book like the first time that people have figured it out? It's a little bit of both. So it it can it usually chooses to appear as a clown, and that clown is you know Pennywise is the is the name that's used most often. A couple of times, it's referred to as Robert Gray. Like I guess that's just his professional pseudonym if he needs to <laughs> if he needs to send like a switchblade to somebody in the mail, which he does. Okay. He's got a post office box under Robert Gray. Yeah, and the deal, like, he, the, like, it and this town have a really strange relationship. Like, in I a would lot of imagine ways, so. He murders people every 27 years. That's but in a, a lot weird of ways, relationship. Like, in a lot of ways, he is the, te- well, I, I, okay. shouldn't, I shouldn't say he. Back sh- up the truck. Yeah, what? keep me on the, keep me honest with pronouns. I need to, like, I need to use names. So, like, Pennywise is, like, intertwined with this town in a weird way. Like, it is the town in a lot of ways. Like, it can cause, like, if stuff is happening, it can cause adults to be, like, oblivious. It can sort of work through people in weird ways to kill people. Like, it usually... So, it goes on a tear, like, every 27, 28 years for around a year-ish and it goes on a terror, like murdering kids and it doesn't get nat like it oddly never gets national attention, even though even in the it off season, <laughs> dairy is the site of many like, gruesome crimes. And I assume that it like any good football player knows that games are won in the off season. So it's it, true. You got to sh- you got to show up to training camp in shape. Yeah. It comes to two a days and kills people <laughs> when it's sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's and and people don't like selectively don't remember things or just don't want to talk about things. So it's really hard to track down information about this monster. It's just it's it's just just a little unsettling. Okay. I guess. Just a little bit. Yeah. Like it's like things are just off enough that people should be more worried about them, but they aren't. And that's like part of what makes it unsettling. Okay. Um, and now so, the book starts when the-, uh, the book starts in 1957 with the death of George Denborough, who is uh, Bill's little brother. Okay, um, and he's like he's it's there's a heavy rainstorm and a flood, and uh, Georgie has this little paper boat that Bill has helped 
him like seal up with paraffin wax sure. so it'll float and not get waterlogged. And so he's chasing the boat and then he he peers into the storm drain and there's a clown down there. And he can smell like elephant ears and see balloons. And the clown's like, hey, come down here because there's a circus in the sewer for some reason. And George's <laughs> like, yeah, nothing seems wrong with that. And then it pulls his arm off through the storm grate and he dies. Oh. And that's like the opener. Oh, good. Yeah. Come down okay. here, Georgie. <laughs> come on down to my sewer circus. Ugh. Win a uh, prize. So- so there is a uh, rash of murders in 1957 to 58. And this is like, this is the period when it is active, but there are seven kids and I'm just, I'm going to rattle off their names and it's not, I don't think for the purposes of this conversation, it's going to be super important that you remember all of them because they're all like generic kid names. And so they all, it's like for the first third of the book, which was for a pretty long time, it was hard for me to... <laughs> Like the kids are are introduced to you and you read about what's going on with them so um slowly and like at least at, at the beginning they're intermixed with other characters who don't end up being as important and sure. so it's a while before you really get a sense of any of them as characters and like before you realize oh hey I should be paying attention to the the really specific things that King is telling me about this person because this person matters and isn't just going to get thrown off a bridge and like never mentioned again. Yeah, this sounds like the setup to any fantasy series, right? And it's it's not I'm not I don't say that to like discredit this book mostly just because it sounds like it shares DNA with other styles of fiction mm-hmm. where it's like I can throw 15 characters at you in the first half of this book and you'll get attached to some of them and some of them will only become important later. But given the scope of this story, I'm I, the author, will decide to get away with this this large of a cast. Right. So yeah. the the kids, Bill, Ben, Richie, Ed, Stan, Beverly, and Mike. Um, Beverly, who's a woman, and Mike, who's a black kid. And this Wait. is like, <laughs> what is Beverly? Beverly's a woman. Well, she's a little girl kid. Okay. You named a bunch of kids, and there's just a woman named Beverly. Well, no, it's I. It's because part of this book takes place in 1957 to 58, and part of it takes place in 1984 to 85 when they are grown up. Okay. Like the book time shifts a lot, and so my discussion of it's going to time shift a lot. Okay. Anyway, these seven kids who have like token minorities in their midst because it's the 80s, so we're kind of worried about it, but not super worried about it's, it. Yeah, it's like we're worried enough to have like one of each. <laughs> Collect God. them all. Freaking 80s. Jeez. Um, they all have like individual or small group encounters with it that they survive. And then they all like come together and slowly they all share their stories about when they ran into it. And this like often kids who run into it do not survive their encounters. And then usually they like try to explain away the supernatural things as just being like tricks of the earth, their imagination. Sure, sure. And so over the course of this spring into summer, they sort of intentionally provoke it a couple times and then end up going under the sewers underneath dairy to like confront it. Now here's a question I have for you. Is he always a clown? Are they all dealing with a clown named Pennywise? Is there a reason that you're not just referring to this thing as Pennywise the whole time. Okay, so it generally chooses to take the form of Pennywise because that is initially non-threatening. And I'm going to say I'm not saying that it's initially non-threatening because <laughs> clowns are terrifying. So in the you book, are call rephobic is what in, you're saying. In the book, it said who doesn't who doesn't laugh at a clown? And I'm like, well, Stephen King, maybe you're partially responsible for this, but I'm pretty sure that clowns are horrifying. <laughs> Have you but, always hated clowns, Andrew? I, it's just like look at them. Okay, I guess I've always hated them. I just, have. What do you think about clowns? I don't know. I've Why am been, I on trial here? I haven't been terrified of them. I I was doing a little reading on this, and uh, someone in a Smithsonian article that I was reading was saying that we're in this vicious circle of clown fear now. <laughs> we're a generation or two removed from like benign clowns <laughs> and so now any clowns we see are are 
specifically trading on the scary clown motif and it's creating this feedback loop of clown horror that we just <laughs> can't escape oh no and i also wanted to share this awesome pun with you andrew from the 19th century the guy who basically invented the the clown image as we know it mm-hmm. or one so of the guys pancake makeup and yeah red smile and whatever was a british guy named joseph grimaldi who had a really terrible like life outside of his work as a clown like his brother died of alcoholism at an early age like his wife passed away and he said that he he would smile all night but he was grim all day oh no and his last name was grimaldi oh no it was that's the saddest pun ever oh no and he like invented that in the early 19th century in britain i'd so it like so all you're just of our... doing a lot of clown research for this podcast. Yeah, I was doing a lot of me. clown research, uh, and then of course you have like John Wayne Gacy in the in the 70s. So that's yeah. kind of so like a so nowadays like all clowns are inherently terrifying, and then off in the corner is Ronald McDonald saying like, "Oh, not all clowns." <laughs> no. Oh no. Okay, so so they team up. They're the what is does this like super group of kids have a name? Uh, they're called the losers. <laughs> good, good branding. Yeah, no, that's I don't know that the branding ha- like existed as we know it today in the eighties <laughs> or the fifties. So I don't want to like I don't want to put on too much blast, and it might be like an ironic thing, okay. like when people call themselves like nerds or whatever. Now they're just like taking the word back. Um, but the yeah the they're they're fighting it. They're fighting this bully named henry and his goons who i was gonna are, ask because it like the only kids you've talked about so far have been good kids like are there like crappy there kids are there also? are bad kids yeah and and it works through some of these bad kids sometimes I bet he but does. like for, in the in the in the name of like economy i guess i can't linger too much on the bad kids it, just, it should just be known that they have to work through many obstacles on their road to like hurt the sewer it to yeah. confront it how does yeah, so that they, go down so they go down into the sewer and they confront it now the deal with their confrontation is they do it they're pretty sure that they killed it and they but they make this pack like if it ever comes back we're gonna come back here and we're gonna like finish the thing that we started and like after that they all drift apart and like totally forget like their friendship and dairy and it's like they yeah, they just they forget it all. Weird. And so you in you the reader are put in the position of knowing that this thing happened but not being told what happened and instead of like doing a gone girl thing where like your protagonist just studiously does not think about all the things that he knows all the time, like the the characters are just in the position of of remembering things as you are reading about them remembering them. Huh. Okay. Uh, so jump forward to 1984-85, it comes back, and one of the kids, uh, Mike, uh, is the only one who has stayed behind in Derry, and he's sort of serving as a watchman. Um, so the implication is that he did not forget everybody else. Okay. So he's he's stayed behind. He's tried to talk to people about like the other, the other appearances of it, and is the one, like Mike is the one who we get a lot of the information about like its patterns through. And sure. The stuff that it did before the action of the book. Like, oh, like um, like he's done research on yeah what yeah. Could so have like happened. in in like the early 1900s, like a, a an ironworks exploded and killed like a hundred kids who were on an Easter egg hunt or something, and that was what? how it's that was how it's little. I don't even know what you would call it. Like it's it's activity period ended. That Come time. on down to Pennywise's Easter egg hunt. Every egg is filled with dynamite. Boom. Oh, man. You'll explode when you see our deals. <laughs> Come on down to Penny's used car sales. What? He sounds like the pits. Who, Pennywise? Yes. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> He's not cool. <laughs> um, And so he notices that the pattern is starting up again and so he calls everybody and then all of a sudden they start to remember stuff oh okay like what happened and one of the like stan one of the kids or who is a grown-up person now just goes up in the tub and kills himself which i've talked to you before this to remind me of how 
it reminded me of reading the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. And I made a face because I didn't know did. how that was going to go. Okay, so you've read Hatchet by Gary Paulson, right? I th- yeah. So the book opens with this kid who's, I think his name is Brian. and um, What a kid in, name, Brian. He's in this little tiny plane with like one pilot, and the pilot has a heart attack, and the plane sure, goes down. Sure, sure. And the way that heart attack was explained, was like described- Okay. Just like it was so gradual and coming on. Like the guy is the the guy has gas or something, and he's just like muttering about, "Oh, something must have been something I ate for lunch." And then it like unfolds so gradually and horrifyingly. Like I could not read that book for mm. years because mm. that opening section made me so physically uncomfortable that I could not finish it. To uh, get that, to the rest yeah, of the that book. was like that was like go go listen to me read talking about the girl next door. Yeah, there yeah. were part where like the words on the page feel painful to put your eyes to. Yeah, yeah and so okay. when you meet grown up Stan, it's really it's really early in the book, and this is the section like this book unfolds in multiple sections. So this is the section where Mike is calling everybody. And they are uprooting their grown-up lives and coming back to Derry to do what they said they were going to do. Uh, see you um, later, Martha. I got to go defeat an evil clown monster. Yeah, basically. Go back to they're like, well, I don't really remember everything, and I might not come back. Okay, love you, bye. <laughs> but Stan, uh, you get okay. You get this whole section from the perspective of his wife, who you never really see again in the book. Which is what That's it's smart. another it's That's another smart. thing where. You're never sure like who the important characters are, and like at this point, you don't know who's who's going to come back and who you need to be paying attention yeah. to. Because so far, you've just gotten a million little vignettes with people who you before now have never ever seen before. Um, so Stan like quietly goes up to the bathroom because he likes to have a a bath and a beer, oh, and that's just like a thing that he does. And uh-huh. so he's up there for a little too long. And then she's like, oh, did he went up there and like he didn't say anything and I like he didn't take a beer. So I'm going to take him a beer and it's going to be good. And then she has this whole thing where she's like knocking on the door and she knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks. And then she goes and gets a key and lets herself in. And he's like slashed his wrists in the tub and he's written it on the wall in his uh... own blood. And. The way that this scene unfolded, like I was, I was like sweating bullets on the train as I was reading it. And I had to like sit down and just like stop reading and like breathe it. Like I, it was, it was rough. And I was really, I was actually really worried because I knew this thing was long already, but like if it regularly made me (laughs) feel like that, it was going to be a rough ride. Oh no. That was the only section that did that to me, but yeah, it was pretty early on and it was pretty intense. So And, and it was and it's all from her perspective. So it's yes, the like it's right. the tension of not being able to get into the room, the like morbid knowing fear of what's on the other side. There's that and then King does that thing where he will occasionally deflate tension in a way but then like build up this new tension where you don't know when he's going to spring this thing that he's told you on you, you. So he tells you like yeah, up explain front that if you can, that this dude like kills himself. Oh, and then you're just like, okay, I know it's going to happen sometime. Like I know it's behind that door. Even- <laughs> oh no. And it's just like the dread of like, okay, when is it happening? How's it, how's it going to happen? Like that was a part of the part of the build up for me. That's and awful. Just, it was just like rough. Okay. So I want to like one of the things and maybe we'll bring it up again at the end of the show. One of the things I want to hear from people about is like, have you read a book that's like inspired that kind of a physical reaction in you? <laughs> Cause if so, I want to, I want to know about it. Like, let's talk about it. Let's get okay. through it. Um, so all the, all the kids now grown ups except for Stan go back to dairy and they all like gradually remember more and more. And then they go back underground and they kill it. And in doing so, like the the it slash dairy connection is made increasingly more explicit over the course of the book. But when they kill it, who actually is a female and it's like filled with eggs that they also have to destroy, um, like the town implodes. 
like a giant storm happens and like Main Street collapses into the earth. Yeah, that sounds like a Stephen King book. Yeah, I've and seen, then I feel everybody, like I've read that book before. Yeah. And then everybody just like pulls like all the developers who are interested in dairy like pull their money out, and the big sinkhole in the ground like keeps gradually getting larger and larger. And it's clear that the town is like it's like when you know like a plant or a tree has died. Yes, and there are still like green branches that are doing their thing, but you know that it's like. It's only a matter of time. That is the that's the picture of dairy that you get at the end of the book. At the end of the book, okay. Um, so that's like plot wise, high level. That's what's going on. Like a bunch of kids get terrorized by a spider clown monster that lives under their town. Yes, and some of them get their arms ripped off, and some of them go mad. And there's a bully sometimes, but that doesn't really matter because they had to defeat the evil ghost. I mean, the bully does matter. The bully comes up like a lot, but it just in an hour-ish podcast, I just cannot leave too much on Henry Bowers. Your summary, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the Earth eats the town of Derry. Yeah, but it is dead. But like unequivocally, we we got rid of it. It's gone. We got rid of it, and as far as I know, in subsequent King books, it. Like actual it has not come back. Okay, cool. Um, and and I'm not, it is yeah, not I'm not like, going to say that it's never been referenced, but I am. He's never done like a sequel no. called It Two. <laughs> still, still itten. Penny, penny wise, pound foolish. Penny, it Two. Penny wiser. Excuse me. Yeah, Penny wiser. <laughs> they. Uh, oh, what was I gonna? Man. I was gonna. Okay, so you got a you got a now you got through the loose plot. We've sort of talked about the structure that it takes place in two eras. What else did you want to say? It jumps back and forth between these eras like throughout the book. So it's not okay. a thing where you, it's, it's not it's a thing not where you one read, and two. Right. Like often the way it's most commonly presented is so they so King has set up this thing where the characters, the grown up characters are gradually remembering things that happened to them as kids. Uh, and so once the book is settled into its rhythm, which happens maybe a third of the way through, like once you've met all the characters and they're all on their way back to town, um, you are like with them for the beginning of a chapter and it's like it's often all in italics and they're just like thinking about something and then it bleeds over into this other chapter that's like them as kids. And so you're getting more or less what they remember as they're remembering it. And then right at the end, it really intensifies where you're jumping. You're jumping back and forth between kids in the sewer in the 50s, adults in the sewer in the 80s, and then also a couple of short POV chapters from it. <laughs> How do those go? creepily <laughs> like is it normal prose is he doing weird ee e. coming stuff like it's it's the there are a lot of dropped punctuation marks okay um i don't know like the the weird interdimensionality of the being is like becomes a factor and it's it's weird because this is a horror book and so there is obviously supernatural stuff happening the whole time but the last like 10% or so of this book gets trippy and weird and like it's about like they have to fight the monster like in their minds and they yeah. like talk to this weird yes. psychedelic turtle that created the universe yes. and like what are you doing I am Stephen on King? board with all of this <laughs> I love it so much because that's you can't start the book that way like it has to be like oh here's some you crazy have to like stuff. build up to it yeah you and then you just you just tear all of the sets down, and there's just a bunch of magic space turtles back there who've been yep. making the play happen the whole time. Yep. And you have to punch each one in the face and say, give me your spider eggs. I need to save the universe. Well, the space turtle is good. A good yeah. guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, so don't like... Whoa, whoa. Don't mix it up. Okay. So that's... Several, the... several times it's implied that there is some higher power... Like a good power that sure. is guiding these kids, just like it is a a malevolent power that is fighting against them. And it's never it's never a hundred percent clear whether it's the turtle that's a good power or the vaguely alluded to like <laughs> thing that created the turtle and also it because it is like an alien, I guess. Or maybe from another dimension, because a couple of the kids have a weird like 
they they have a weird smoke hallucination. Uh huh. And they go like way back in time to when it arrived, and it arrived like in the ago. Yeah, this, okay, so... Which is before any humans settled anywhere near this area. Yeah, so we talked about Stephen King's, like, Lovecraft roots. Yeah. And the the story that I read in a really weird New York Times article where it mostly just talked about his kids and how they used to read books to him and, like, record audiobooks for him when he ran out of audiobooks and he liked. <laughs> like, he made them do that when they were kids. Uh, and he discovered all of his dad's lovecraft books like in a box somewhere his dad had like left the family when he was two or something he never knew his father and then he found them all later when he was like 10 boy from this book i can never tell that stephen king had any daddy issues ever oh interesting yeah that's we're gonna talk about that more when i talk about the gross out section of the book but you wanted to section four yeah you want i think we've just finished section two yeah, hit me hit me with some prose if you will, my friend. Okay, so Stephen King, his yeah. books are long. He writes long books. He's also written a lot about writing, so I'm sure keep all those books mind. are super long. Too. <laughs> I don't know that they are, but go continue. Uh, <laughs> and so it's just like everything is in this book. Every single thing. Everything. Yeah. Every thought like I don't I, I'm sure it was edited at some point, but certainly it was not edited for length. <laughs> and some and Stephen King, like he can turn a phrase really well every once in a while. Like uh, there is every 200 pages or so. is No, please? just like, no, okay. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not like he often is a good writer and you can read the stuff that he's writing and and be like, yeah, that's a good sentence. Like. So this the kid this kid Eddie is talking to a grown up about something that's making him uncomfortable. The guy grins at Eddie and uh, he returned it as best he could, but his interest in ice cream sodas was at its lowest ebb in his entire personal history. Okay, and it's just like that's a good that's a good sentence that yeah. conveys to me a sense of like how uncomfortable this kid is, while also like acknowledging that his entire personal history is not that long i don't know it's just i I, something about that sentence i liked a lot it's a yeah it is it is a whimsical backstory wrapped in a like present tense reaction to something yeah yeah yeah. okay and but then there are other sentences like that night lacking roughly six months of being 28 years from the day in 1957 when george denbro had met pennywise the clown like what (laughs) What is that sentence? Can you read that again? I had a hallucination about a clown. That night, lacking roughly six months of being 28 years from the day in 1957 when George Denbro had met Pennywise the Clown. Maybe, yeah. Maybe and that's like the opening a of, a, of a sentence. Pick a different verb, but, my friend. Or like, just like there's a more economical way to say that. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> is there a style that that's trying to mesh into? It's just it's very it's the whole thing is like super comprehensive and and to and a lot of the times that this works in the book's favor. Okay. So when the kids, or you know now grown ups start getting back into dairy and they realize everything that's changed, you as the reader have at that point spent so much time. Okay. In the dairy, like in the kids' dairy in the fifties, that you yeah. sort of feel how monumental these changes are. That's one of the things that which I, is interesting. Yeah, it, that's what I, one of the things that I feel like long books, good long books, get away with in the same way that TV shows get away with that movies don't. Yeah, like, like worlds are super something. Yeah, yeah, worlds are super fleshed out and lived in, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's just like okay, get on with it a little bit. Like uh, especially early on, though, it happens a, a few times throughout the book. King likes to do this thing where he like baits and switches you. So he ends a sub chapter because this is, of course, split up into a bunch of chapters and sub chapters and sections and interludes and all all kinds of every every sectional every word that means sectional divider that you could come up with. Stephen King has used in this book to divide it up. But he'll end a little sub chapter on a cliffhanger. And then in the next chapter, instead of telling you immediately what happens after, he zooms out. (laughs) 
so the kids are down in this the kids are down in this tunnel or maybe it's the adults at this point they're all down in this tunnel and they're about to confront it again and they are trying to remember like what they did to confront it last time like that's the last thing they can't remember and the chapter ends with bill striking a match to like see this thing that's coming toward them sure and then the next chapter, the first wrong thing happened on that late spring day in 1985, two minutes before official sunrise. To understand how wrong it was, one would have to have known two facts that were known to Mike Hanlon, who lay unconscious in the Dairy Home Hospital as the sum came up, both concerning the Grace Baptist Church, which had stood on the corner of Witcham and Jackson since 1897. The church was topped with a slender white spire, which was the apotheosis of every Protestant church steeple in New England. There were clock faces on all four sides of the steeple base, and the clock itself had been constructed and shipped from Switzerland in the year 1898. The only one that stood in town is Haven Village, 40 miles away. Stephen Bowie, blah, 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 blah. And it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes. And it gives you all the stupid information about this dumb clock tower to tell you that, like, this clock didn't chime that morning and it was weird and it, like, unsettled a bunch of town folk. But it's only unsettling because they all know the history because it's the only clock they've ever seen. They've learned about it in school for generations. Listen, man, like when you've gotten to your 50th diversion about like the topography of Derry, Maine, where you're like just getting into the book where you're like, okay, I've read 300 pages of this and it hasn't really gotten going yet. But I have to read it for this stupid book podcast that I do. Oh, man, (laughs) you have turned a page. (laughs) <laughs> Literally and figuratively. And then you're like you're reading about these bullies chasing down this kid. And then you zoom out. And it's like the town of Derry was built along this river in the year 1875. And what a blah, 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 blah. Like, come on, dog. Okay. <laughs> Sir, are there other things about the prose that either bothered you or excited you? No, I think that's the main thing. All Except, right. I mean, this is going to segue into the gross out section. All right, so get your gross-out pants on, boys and yeah. girls. And this is this is one reason why I wanted to do I wanted to do plot, I wanted to do structure, so that's good stuff. And then I want to have like a low point, which is prose and gross-out factor. Quit trying to turn this podcast into a book, Andrew. And then for the last thing, I want it to be like the denouement, where I get to say that I liked it. So this is the, we're reaching the climax. We're, we're reaching. Well, <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, so this is the gross out factor section of the podcast where I talk about how Stephen King sponsored by Joe Rogan and fear factor and yes. the, like the male gays have a complicated relationship with one another. Okay. And that he describes like an 11 or 12 year old girl using weirdly sexualized terms and that there's like a, a climactic, so to speak, little section at the end of the book that's super gross. So yeah, there's there's this section where he's referring to like a pretty young librarian. There's a section where he mentions that the reason you can tell it's the eighties and dairy instead of the fifties that this is that some girls like not wearing a bra. Mm-hmm. Um there's just little things like that and they're talking about like eleven and twelve year old boys like looking up girl skirts to see a glimpse of cotton panties or whatever, and it's like, okay, I guess that's what twelve year old boys would be doing. But you don't need to, like, relish it so much. <laughs> and there's a section when young young Beverly is standing up and he describes her in, like, I'll just, I'll let, I'll let you, the readers at home, don't take my word for it. Here comes some gross prose. Uh, In that moment, Beverly looked every inch the lovely woman she was going to become, and if Ben Hanscom had been around to see her just then, his heart might not have been able to stand it. She was standing fully upright, her head cocked to the left, her eyes wide, her hair done in braids that had been tied off with two small red velvet bows, which she had bought in dollies for a dime. Her posture was one of total attention and concentration. It was feline, lynx-like. She had shifted forward on her left foot, her body half-turned as if to go after Patrick, and the legs of her faded shorts had pulled up enough to show the edging on her yellow cotton panties. Below them, her legs were already smoothly muscled, beautiful in spite of the scabs, bruises, and smushes of dirt. And then there are a bunch of sections where he describes young Beverly's legs as cultish, which I've decided is the grossest adjective that you could apply yeah, what to is a preteen's to, legs. What is he trying to imply there? 
just like that the, that they're like the beginning of grown up legs, I guess. Like you can see in those kid legs. Like he's se- trying to say that it's sexy, a girl sexy with sexy grown up legs. Oh, that I thought she'll you- have someday. <laughs> I thought you were trying to say something that wasn't sexy at all. It's just like this is like a grown up's legs on a little kid. No, like, no, could- no, 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 no. Like because <laughs> that'd be funnier, like and less in, troublesome. Like oh, in six or seven years, it'll be okay to have a giant boner about these legs. But oh, like, let mm. me tell you about them anyway. <laughs> mm. What and then to what is there an end to the like no, not really, I don't guess, except to convey like the sense of of kiddom where puberty is like swirling around just under the surface, which I like it is a confusing time, I guess, but it does it just reads weird because you know he's a grown man writing about this little girl, and even in the book, she's a grown up girl later, okay. But a, yeah, then let me let me skeeve you the most that you've ever been skeeved on this please, podcast. Please do this is because this particular critique is not a thing I've heard of Stephen King before. But like hearing the prose, like you're spot on. So I'm I'm all right. And I'm, like, I'm game. I might be, I'm game I might to be, be like, I might be over sensitive to it. I don't know, but I'm game so to be skeeved. So the kids are leaving the sewer. They have like vanquished it they're like around half of them are pretty sure that they killed it and the other half are like well maybe not but in any case they're all trying to get out and whatever force has like brought them together and like given them power is already sort of waning and then later this will like manifest in them like all forgetting each other like we've already talked about Yeah, yeah yeah um but so this kid, Eddie, was like the navigator with a really strong sense of direction that they were, they were relying on to uh, get them out of there. And something about like their something about how their power has dissipated, has made it harder for him to navigate. And he's lost. And the the sewers and pipes and stuff under dairy are so vast that like they could never, ever find their way out otherwise. And so there's this really, really weird section where Beverly is like, oh, weird. I feel like this we're drifting apart or whatever. And we need to like restore whatever closeness we had. So like all of you have sex with me. All of you have sex with me, a 12 year old girl. Hmm. And then like this would be. And it's like alluded to a little bit earlier in the book when Beverly and grown up Bill are having sex with each other and like he makes her orgasm twice and she's like two orgasms. That's how many orgasms I had when I had sex with all of you at the same like whoa. Right, one right after another. And whoa. And Bill didn't go like see you later. Bye. <laughs> No, it's another thing where they like collectively remembered the thing that had happened because it had been like even before they like Bill and Beverly and and Ben, who is like they serve as a love triangle, I guess, in this book, all remembered this time when they had said that they all loved each other, but they couldn't really remember the circumstances. And it's pretty late in the game when it's well, you were in a sewer that it's because they all boned down on each other. Is they all went? They all rode the sewers to bone town no you can't say that is there i can say what i want because stephen king can and he's like an international best-selling author so is there like an implication that it is working on them still no it is out of the picture at this point Hmm. they're just she's just like everybody have sex with me and then we'll feel close again and then they get out after that but it's like what and I think somebody on either our Facebook page or our Goodreads group or something asks specifically, like, what do you think of the way the kids get out of the sewers? And my answer is that to that true? question is, like, I am grossed. I did find it in our email. Erica wrote in. Uh, she had some good book recommendations and, and was writing in about uh, thanking us for covering stuff like Fifty Shades. But then she wanted to know, Andrew, um, what do you think of the group Uh, of how the group finds their way out of the sewers near the end. I read it for the first time when I was 13 or 14, and when I got to that section, I had to set the book down and say to myself, what the hell did I just read? Yep, that's pretty much it. Overall, though, I love the book. (laughs) That's pretty much my experience. 
is because the tent, the, like like I said, the last part of it is trippy as hell anyway because they're fighting it and there's like they're getting pulled into different dimensions and like trying not to go insane and sometimes the horror of seeing it is enough to make your brain exp- like literally explode. Mm-hmm. And then there's this part at the end where all the kids have sex with the girl one. But I don't. I I don't I don't know how to answer this part of your story here. I don't like I'm not asking for an answer. I'm just like telling you, okay, this is a thing that happened that did not seem to me to be strictly necessary. And you like don't... I I understood like that all the all the kids were like close to each other and that there was still like a simmering love triangle going on without needing to like read about kid boners. Okay. So thanks for that, Stephen King. Cool. Thanks for making me read about kid boners. Thanks. So in summation. In closing. We're in, in section conclusion. five. I, I wanted to, as part of your summation, one of the things we've only kind of touched on is this book's legacy as a work of horror fiction. You may have a better idea of its legacy than I, I do. I mean, aside from just like, I don't know if this it is, is when widely the scary regarded. Clown... That's what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah, but like, so I will say, on the whole, the book is really good, and it's really it's worth reading. And like, so for all the sort of troublesome stuff that King does with like the male gaze and with women, and like he loves child abuse, he loves spousal abuse. Like, there are a lot of very graphic scenes in this book of just women being beat to hell by their husbands mm-hmm. um like for all of that stuff like he handles race surprisingly well like there's mm. so there's mike hanlon the the black kid and his dad who like dies of cancer but there's like this whole section where he's telling them the story about about like they were in this company in the army and they then the white people and dairy all like hated them and it's just it, i i thought it was very well handled and done with a lot of 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 nuance and just like these people talking to each other and being like like when does this stop or like when like why do they see us this way and just there's no there's no answer to it which is pretty much racism right yeah (laughs) to to your point about the abuse stuff that's a that's a i can i'm not i'm not gonna lump that in with like the kid no no, stuff. no no like I, I think i don't i don't think that king is like condoning wife no. beating by describing stuff as as um as graphically as he does he just he does it very graphically and it makes you and it makes you uncomfortable and it's it's designed to make you feel that way and i yeah. think it's pretty clear that it's designed to make you feel that way and it's just he is very successful on that front and like the wider point there is that he is like you can see what he's trying to do in pretty much every scene that he writes, and he usually d- pulls it off. Okay, that's yeah. I was gonna say because he's he's and after I think a that's particular the mark type of, like, of successful writing. He's after a particular type of evil and particular type of awful human behavior. So he's not gonna he's not gonna restrain himself. Yeah, from those scenarios, and it deals with like you brought up before his his thoughts on evil and like whether it was external or whether it was innate. And like, that's, that's some of the stuff that this book grapples with is like, yes, it is doing some of this stuff and it is influencing a lot of the citizens of dairy. But like, there are fathers who mm-hmm. abuse and sexually abuse their, there are fathers who do that to their daughters. Like there's, there are husbands who do this to their wives. Like the stuff happens outside of a, town that's like made of monster <laughs> it's, yeah it's it's human stuff it's driven in a in this particular case by a monster but it's like we have this capacity in us already certainly to be bad and to be indifferent and to lie and to and forget i don't know and is there anything related to that point which i, I think is one of the larger things of the book it seems that it's kids who then grow up and continue to deal with it. Like he's, he's used this motif in some of his other books. Like, is there, what to you is the reason that it's like, it's a bunch of kids that deal with it at first 
and then they have to come back as adults. Well, it's a, it's a bunch of kids because, and I don't think I hit on this as hard as I should have earlier, but it like it usually appears as a clown like just by default. But what it does usually is it tries to suss out the thing you are most afraid of and then appear as that. Okay. And it prefers to prey on kids because their fears are like deeper and they're also simpler. Like you and I as adults are going to worry about like paying rent Mm -hmm. and like having decent health insurance and like a bunch of stuff where it would be hard for a monster to show up and be like, (laughs) I'm, I'm the president of Chase Bank and your account is overdrawn. It's not a thing that can happen. I would but, I would be really surprised if a giant Comcast bill like knocked on my door. It's like you're three months overdue. <laughs> this is gonna do all kinds of stuff to your credit score. <laughs> but kids are scared of like mummies and werewolves and stuff. And so it's just it's easier for it to feed on those kids. And so that's why it starts with them as kids. And then it comes back to them as grownups and like it is baiting them and luring them back because it assumes that they're like, like that imagination thing's a double edged sword. So like if you, if these kids like believe that their asthma inhaler thing is full of poison and they spray it with it, then it's going to react as though it has been sprayed with poison because they like, they can make believe it to be true. Like they can Muppet babies it into reality. Oh, that's cool. All right. That's great. I like that. And so as an adult, it assumes that their power to do this will have been diminished enough that they'll be pretty easy to defeat. And they turn out to be not as easy to defeat as it thinks that they will be. So yeah, that's like the the narrative reason for that. The power of imagination. Mm-hmm. Just imagine like a rainbow that says imagination. <laughs> if you have ever defeated a magic spider with your imagination, you should write in and tell us about it at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, you could also put it on our Facebook page. You could leave like photos of clowns that you've been scared of uh sewer clowns please don't tweet those to us at twitter.com slash over to pod i want I to see every to scary to clown gift that you can find okay bring it right. on challenge send me two things what book has made you physically want to hurl on the train and two what's your favorite clown gift hashtag a clown for my andrew uh i want to <laughs> thank jake and madeline and bunbury and paper chimes and anita Catherine. Graham, Sophie, Jillian, Robert Zim, Kara, Catherine, Emily, Rachel, Melanie, uh, Alyssa, Marie, Taylor, Veronica, Tara, I think, Rob, and Melissa again. Another Melissa, maybe? Uh, for There's all... more than one Melissa, Craig. I know. It's, I want to make sure I was like, act, not just repeating myself, that I was referring to different <laughs> people. Uh, they all reached out to us on social media this week. Thank you so much. Uh, Andrew, if people want to find out more about the show, what should they do? They should imagine themselves over to OverduePodcast.com where they can find links to our Stitcher and iTunes and RSS pages. If you subscribe in iTunes, please do rate and review us because that helps us rise in the rankings and it makes us feel good. Uh, thank you to MadCatMU, uh, Aura-esque, and Uopi1, who have all who have all <laughs> left us reviews this week. We really appreciate it. Um, also on our website, we have Amazon links to the books that we are reading, the ones that we are going to read. You can buy those using those links and support the show. Um, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash overdue pod and support the show that way. And uh, if you are donating at $5 a month or more, you get to recommend a book to us and we bump it up to the top of our queue, which is why we are reading it this week. So thank you again to Graham for for uh, supporting us and what else we have our head our podcast network headgum uh thank you to them for uh featuring us on the front page of itunes this week which is pretty cool I yeah think. we were excited to have jake on the show last week it was super fun right yeah yeah that was pretty and cool. and hello to any new people who who found us because yeah they listen to the podcast because we of him. also mentioned our goodreads page we've got a goodreads group that our listeners started which is super cool there's a pretty there's a pretty good thread about horror fiction on there right now there's also a thread about books that are getting out like books that are outdated like you read them as a kid and you've gone back and they're kind of troublesome like yeah, stuff kicked like off, robinson kicked Crow. off by so, robinson caruso's yeah. super racism 
it's evolved beyond regular racism um, into super racism. You mentioned the Patreon thing earlier. We've got a couple, I think, requests that we have to go out to new donors. So be on the lookout for those if you've recently donated to the show. I am reading A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving for next week. Uh, also a big book, but I think I can do it. So... And then we've got a February bonus episode coming up sooner rather than later. And um, that was uh, Sophie Brookover, who is one half of two bossy dames. Uh, You might recommend you might recognize that name because our friend Margaret H. Willison is the other half. Uh, She read Speedboat by Renata Adler. And that that was a fun episode to record. So look out for that in the next couple of weeks. And uh, our episode on prayer for Owen Meany will be up next Monday. And is there anything else? Is that it? No. All right. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next week, try to be happy. Watch out for clouds. And watch out for clouds. That was a HeadGum Podcast.